Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres. And you can play them on just about any digital listening device, whether it's an iPhone or a Kindle or an Android, whatever you have. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get 10,000 Saints by today's guest, Eleanor Henderson. Or how about Skippy Dies by Paul Murray? Or what about a classic like Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury? Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the book, if you get the freebie, it helps the show. I get a few bucks. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. All right, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is where we are. This is what's happening. This is the current set of circumstances. My guest today is Eleanor Henderson, who is living the dream right now as we speak. Uh, she has lived the debut novel dream in uh, in so many respects. Her first book, 10,000 Saints, it took nine years to write. It was a long process. It was a difficult road, but it wound up getting published by Echo, and it went on to earn great acclaim. Uh, great critical acclaim, and it was named, just to give one prominent example, as one of the 10 best books of 2011 by the New York Times Book Review, uh, and it has just been released in trade paperback. So Eleanor and I are going to be talking in just a moment, uh, but first, wh- what's happening? Wh- what happened today? Uh, not a ton. I went for a walk a few hours ago, and uh, I saw an elderly couple holding hands and walking, and uh, that always gets to me, uh, I have to admit. There are a few things in life that I like better than seeing old people who still get along, you know? And uh, I think part, you know, part of that is just human nature. Uh, it's nice to see people getting along. Uh, but part of it, too, is that I'm married and I'm sensitive uh, to the whole thing, you know, to, the, uh, to other people's relationships. So uh, by contrast, I just had a friend 
uh, a buddy of mine tell me the other day uh, that he's getting divorced and uh, he's one of the first, like, you know, the first or second friend of mine to go through this. And uh, it just bums me out, uh, maybe more so than others. I, I might be particularly sensitive to this uh, because I tend to be conflict averse and uh, I find it particularly heartbreaking uh, to hear this kind of news. You know, like I like it when people get along and I don't like it when people who used to get along really well decide that they no longer get along uh, or for that matter, <laughs> you know, even want to be around each other. Uh, but what's interesting is that today when I was out walking uh, and I saw this old couple and they were holding hands, uh, you know, I, I noticed or I, I took note of the fact that they looked sweet, you know, that they were sweet looking people. Uh, which helped with the whole after effect. And, uh, you know, I started to ponder that, and, you know, just like not only were they holding hands, but they were cute old people holding hands. And I started to wonder, you know, if they weren't cute, but they were holding hands, uh, would I feel differently? You know, like if I had seen uh, like an ugly and ornery, like hunchback, you know, hunchbacked old couple, uh, you know, but they were holding hands, you know, would I, you know, would I still be sitting here talking about this? It's questionable. And uh, it seems to me, if I'm being honest, you know, it seems to me like the cuteness is part of the equation. And that, uh, you know, when it comes to the, the, you know, the kind of that warm, like that heartwarming sort of feeling, you know, it's, it's all about cute old people holding hands and walking. Uh, but then, you know, today, as I kind of hyperanalyzed it, it occurred to me that maybe, possibly, I was fooling myself. Maybe I've been living a lie, you know, all these years. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking around and I see these people and, uh, I build this entire fantasy quickly. You know, I build this like entire life story, uh, for these cute old people in a span of about 45 seconds, just based on the fact that they're cute and they're old and they're holding hands. Uh, <clears throat> but you know, for all I know, uh, you know, they have a miserable relationship 95% of the time. And, uh, you know, they've been hanging on for God knows what reason for God knows how many decades. And for all I know, uh, you know, I just happened to catch them on a rare good day when they were outside enjoying the nice weather, uh, you know, when in fact, for most of their existence, they've been locked in a petty and contentious psychosexual power struggle. So <clears throat> anyway, I like it when people get along and uh, perhaps uh, strangely, I like a wedding. I really do. I love a wedding. I like, uh, I like going to weddings it's kind of a pain in the ass to get there, but like, I like, once I'm there, I like being there. And I think I just like when people make that effort, you know, like I, I like when they just go for it. And, uh, I realize that in some circles it's not uh, cool or whatever to enjoy weddings or to celebrate that or whatever, you know, or however it goes. Um, you know, and I, I think what I'm saying is that I just like how much hope is inherent in the act, you know, in the ceremony and in the gathering. And, uh, I'm not a religious person at all, as, as most of you know. Uh, I just like how at a wedding, uh, everybody plays along and everybody is, you know, genuinely in a good mood. It seems to me, and I have a pretty good eye for that, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, it's unlike the holidays where everyone's supposed to be in a good mood. Uh, but most people are, you know, or a lot of people are like anxious and depressed or sort of manic and like pretending to be happy or whatever it is. And at weddings, uh, I feel like there's just a better batting average. You know, I feel like it's hard to be a buzzkill at a wedding, like a true buzzkill. Like even the biggest curmudgeon, the biggest cynic out there, if you put a few drinks in him and you play some Mustang Sally, you know, eventually he'll come around. And uh seems like most everybody falls for it. 
you know, you have a few drinks, you cheer, there's some music, maybe you dance, and uh, you hope for the best. You know, eat some cake. So, and then if you're the ones getting married, you know, hopefully you make it. Hopefully you go the distance. It all works out. You know, you maintain and you nurture and you squabble and you find yourselves at the end of it all entangled in a long and uh, drawn out, petty and contentious psychosexual power struggle. And, uh, and, you know, at the end of 50 years, you have white hair and you're holding hands and you're looking cute, walking around in sunshine. And uh, some overtired guy in his middle 30s sees you and starts getting emotional, which would be me. Uh, and I am overtired. I, you know, I know I always say that, but like, I'm, I'm just being honest. That's how I feel. And I think today in that state, I was a little vulnerable. I was like a little soft in the head, a little sleepy. And it's not a bad state to be in, in a lot of ways. You know, it's kind of like your head feels like it's full of feathers and, uh, you know, just a little, a little emotionally vulnerable. That's, that's pretty much what it is. So, uh, what else did I do today? Oh, I sat in front of my computer and, uh, I stared at words and uh, I am ferociously, it seems, obsessed with this novel that I'm currently writing, which is a great thing. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it better be good. It better be good. You know, like I'm in the trenches with it and I feel like I have tunnel vision and my entire life feels like it's based around it right now. And until I get this big draft done and done well, I'm going to continue in this vein. And so, you know, metaphorically speaking, I'm sitting really close to the television if you know what I'm saying. Like my perspective on it is bad, but at the same time I have a really good feeling about it. But my nose is like pressed up against the television. So all I'm seeing is snow. And, uh, you know, so I don't know what I'm seeing is what I'm trying to say. So once this thing's done, I'm going to put it, you know, put down the manuscript for a month or whatever it is. And then I'm going to pick it back up again and I'm going to read it. And I'm going to find out at that point what I have. And if what I have isn't what I think I have, uh, I'm going to implode. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go on a leaving Las Vegas bender. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just, I'm just going to weep. I'm going to sob convulsively on the air on this podcast. And I'm going to break down publicly and tell you about my pain. So, uh, speaking of sobbing, just a transition, how about some tears of joy uh, some good news. The podcast got a nice write-up in Filmmaker Magazine. Uh, you might have heard about this already on the web. Uh, but, it, you know, it's the Winter 2012 edition, which was very exciting, very nice. It appeared in a regular feature called The Super 8, which, uh, you know, showcases, like, cultural items of note. And so other people was mentioned positively as, uh, you know, good, good entertainment and a good resource for creative people and uh, writers in particular. So if you want to read what they say in full, you can just go to the show's website at otherpeoplepod.com. But uh, here's the part that I really enjoyed the most. Uh, I want to share it with you on the air here. Okay, so here it is. And I quote, For Listy, other people is just one more cog in a burgeoning literary media empire. End quote. So uh, do, do, you, do you hear that? Uh, I am a titan of industry. I am at the helm of a burgeoning literary media empire. So if, if someone asks you, you know, who I am, I want you to tell them that. I want you to say, uh, that's Brad Listy. He, uh, he runs a burgeoning literary media empire because, uh, that is indeed what I'm doing here. That's my operation. That's what I'm putting together. Uh, you're damn right. It is. I, like, I walk the halls of this apartment and my dog Walter cowers when he sees me, he goes running in the other direction. 
I step outside, <laughs> I step outside and stand on my little balcony and uh, I look at the building next door, just 25 feet away. And the crazy old Russian lady hanging her laundry out the window knows that she is in the presence of a powerful executive. It is a burgeoning literary media empire. So thanks to Filmmaker Magazine. Really do appreciate that. That's a great thrill, and it's very cool for the show. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And speaking of the show, uh, let's get on with it, shall we? Let's get focused. Let's take some deep breaths. Let's find our center. Uh, here we are without any further ado. This is my conversation with Eleanor Henderson, author of the novel, 10,000 Saints. You're in Virginia? I'm not in Virginia anymore. Oh, oh no, that's right. You're in Ithaca. Yeah, I was once in Virginia and I'm now in Ithaca. I've been here for about a year and a half, so I'm sitting in my office at Ithaca College and looking out at a sort of typical gray Ithaca day. And, uh... It's a it's a half decent view. Okay, so like like what are we looking at? Are we looking at like a parking lot? Are we looking at like a lawn? Are we? I'm looking at a, a roof, a sort of gravel roof, and um, a stand of trees, which is obscuring a really nice view of the lake. So um, I didn't get the lake view, but you know I have a nice view of the collegiate football field. Well, you know, so, I, just, I just remember like uh, in Colorado, uh, in, in particular, for some reason, I guess there was like a lot of like commuting or a lot of people who had been to both places. I've never been to Ithaca, but I just remember the Ithaca is gorgeous. Yes. Bumper stickers everywhere. That's my, yes. That's my and there are a lot of riffs on the, on that motto now, you know, the most popular of which I think is Ithaca is gangsta. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, there are many of those as well, but, uh, yeah, we're proud of our gorgeous. Is it on, is that bumper sticker on your car? No, it's not. I've, I've, I've stopped myself short of buying, uh, buying that bumper sticker. Okay. So now how did you wind up there? Did you get, uh, obviously you got some sort of a uh, teaching offer? I did. I got a teaching offer here at Ithaca College uh, three days before I sold my novel. Whoa. So it was a big week. <laughs> Holy shit. So, okay. Yeah. So, so, in that, so, okay, the teaching offer came independent of the sale of your book. So the- it did. It, it did. I was lucky. They, I could be hated on campus. But uh, instead, uh, I am warmly uh, embraced because I, I now have a book. So, um, yeah, they, they had uh, high hopes and uh, a lot of trust that I would, uh, you know, make, make good on the promise of a literary career. So, uh, yeah, they hired me. And shortly after, I think it was their good luck that 
that allowed me to sell my book. Okay. So, I mean, can, but can you explain like how, like, what was it like just the strength of an interview? I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Like, because if you just have your MFA, right. You know, a lot of people out there listening probably, or, you know, have te- teaching on the brain. It's like, how do you get that? Job? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's a mystery. I, I didn't, I didn't anticipate, uh, getting the job, uh, at all. Um, I, I hadn't even really been thinking about being on the market. I thought maybe when I have a book, if I have a book, I will, um, I will, you know, look at the AWP job listings. Once again, I was teaching at that point at James Madison university in Virginia and, uh, but not in the creative writing department or not creative writing. So, uh, so I, I was ready to leave, but I didn't think that my resume was ready, but, um, in in part, I, I think uh, maybe the strength of um, just having a short story in Best American Short Stories, I think, might have, um, you know, been, uh, had captured the attention of, of some of the folks in the department. But um, that was really the strength of my, of my publishing. Um, you know, I was the fiction chair of the Virginia Quarterly Review. Maybe that helped. But, you know, I think really, like, I, my, experience teaching was probably valued more than I expected it to be. Yeah. I mean, that's so, what you had, te- you had taught yeah. before that. I mean, it's like, it's like, that's the, yeah. big, that's the big, uh, the big problem with teaching is that they always want someone with experience, but the only way of course yeah. to, to get experience is to right. get somebody to give you a teaching job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it's mysterious. I've learned that each institution is different and is looking for a different sort of combination of teaching experience and, you know, publishing experience and that kind of thing. So uh, I was I was really lucky to land a job here. So yeah, you know, I had to go through the the uh torturous interview process, but um I was just thrilled I, to to land the job here and wasn't really sure what I was more excited about. I mean I just, you know, landed a book deal and but you know, having having the security of a paycheck was pretty exciting too. So Yeah, no it was so a cool okay. week. So yeah, like so take us into that week. Like what was the week and the year? You know, like what, what? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was the end of February, and I was sure I didn't have the job. I was driving somewhere, and I got a message from the chair of the department, and uh, and then I, you know, I felt like she's not going to call me with bad news, right? So I pulled over somewhere in a parking lot. I think my son was in the back seat, and uh, and just listened to the message. And you know, by the tone of her voice, I was pretty certain that, that I have a job. So, you know, I went from, you know, completely, completely depressed and uncertain of my future to being, uh, to being pretty excited. Um, I have a friend who just sold her novel last week and she texted me that she was, you know, ready to jump off the Empire State Building. And then literally, you know, 10 minutes later, she texted me that there was interest in her book. It's amazing how those things can change that quickly. But, uh, but uh, yeah, so so I was uh, thrilled in this parking lot with my son in the back seat to have this news, and then um, and by that point I'd had a, an agent who was willing to take on my book and was preparing to send it out, and and you know the momentum just sort of kept kept building, and and uh, as as my agent uh, sent my book out just shortly after, um, it was just this just, you know this crazy sick high that uh, lasts for the three or four days or sometimes three or four weeks or months, I guess, depending on how long the whole process takes for someone, um, you know, where you sort of can't eat and can't sleep and, um, you know, you're half sick and half, um, you know, uh, just, uh, entirely exuberant with hope that something might happen, um, that you've been thinking about for a long, long time. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I should say, we should say that you, it took you nine years to write this book, correct? It did. It took me nine years to write the book. So, so this certainly had been a moment that I had been thinking about and hoping about and not admitting to myself that I'd been thinking and hoping about. Because <laughs> you can't admit that you actually want to publish the book that you've been writing forever. You, you just can't think about it in too much detail. You'll drive yourself crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, and I was pretty clueless about how, how it all happened. So um, I had a magician of an agent who who shepherded me through the experience. And, you know, once the good news starts coming in, like, so-and-so might be interested in the book. It's, uh, you know, you can't get close enough to your Gmail inbox. You know, you're just refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. <laughs> okay, so wait, so wait, who's your agent? Do you mind if I ask? Yeah, I know. My agent is Jim Rutman. And uh, he's a sterling lord, literistic. Well, and what is is literistic? I've always wondered this. Like, is that like a name? What is literistic? That's a really, that's a really good question. I've yeah. wondered myself. We should call Jim and ask him. Can we get him on? <laughs> because uh, I've wondered too. It's just a it's a fantastic adjective, right? Yeah. Or is it a noun? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I feel, literistic feels like an adjective. You know, an adjective to me or something. I think it only applies to sterling lord. Yeah. Well, no, I don't it, think it. it I mean, Sterling Lord on its own would be badass. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> and it sounds like it's two people, right? But it's this one guy who whose career started with um, Stan and Dan Berenstein, of all people. You mean like the Berenstein Bears? Yes, the Berenstein Bears. Literistic <laughs> is founded on the okay. Berenstein Bears. Crew. Okay, okay, and like that would sound that would have sounded like you know even like two years ago that would have sounded completely absurd to me. But now that I have <laughs> a young child, like I'm reading these books to her every night. And yeah. I'm like, man, there are some people out there who are making a mint because like everybody I know has Sandra Boynton books, for instance, you know, like, right, right, everybody, yeah. everybody gets like the cat in the hat and everybody gets the Berenstein Bears. And it's like, you know, people have a lot of people have children, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I think the very hungry caterpillar, Eric Carl's doing pretty well. Oh, I mean, and, and like and then the other thing, too, and I don't mean to belittle a good children's book because I know that it's not easy to do. Right. But, uh, you know, at the same time, it's like, come on, like, I know what it's like to struggle over a 350 or 400 page novel. I mean, you, you did it for nine years. Um, and then I look at one of these children's books that like, you know, has a word count of like 75. <laughs> and I'm like, these right. people are just minting money with these books about like a bear who gets a tummy ache or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> I, get, I get a little envious. Yeah. I have to say, I get a little Right. Envious. And then it's a series of 75 books. Right. To come, right? And then your three-year-old has to have every one because it turns out three-year-olds are the most obsessive creatures on the planet. Yeah. It's a good yeah. racket. It's a good business to be in. Yeah. To figure it out. Yeah. So anyway, Stan and Jan. Wow. Okay. Who so, would have known? So, okay. So give me, uh, like, in terms of, like, su submitting the book, mm -hmm. you know, into this, you know, putting the book on the market and getting into the sales process, how long did it take? Was it quick? It was quick. It was really quick. I should say that it wasn't so quick to find the agent. Um, you know, it was nine years of writing the book. And then one of those years was, uh, was, you know, pulling my hair out because I didn't think that I had a book after all, because nobody wanted it. Um, you know, I'd sent it out to maybe a dozen agents and got a lot of nice no's, you know, and all of their notes were different. I can't sell this book because it doesn't have a likable female character, you know? <laughs> so really random, random and, you know, sweet, but sort of unhelpful, directives. Um, and I, and I had this conversation with Jim Rutman, um, on my son's first birthday, he talked to me for two and a half hours, uh, and didn't agree to take the book on, but gave me just the most wonderful feedback. You know, I, I'd been through this great MFA program at the university of Virginia, but I felt like I got more feedback in that two and a half hours than 
I'd gotten on the book so far. Um, and so I, I really felt uh, already invested in him and hoped that he felt somewhat invested in me. But he, he gave me these notes, um, and I, I went back and spent the next nine months or so um, just curiously rewriting and cutting a great deal. I cut about 75 pages of the book. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so, so it was even bigger. Um, and it's so funny that you say that about, like, about Jim, how like you, know, you have this conversation with an agent, after, yeah. after you've been looking for an agent and after you've been struggling with the manuscript or whatever, and then, um, you know, you, you, when you find the agent or when you find, frankly, the editor or the publisher who's going to ultimately uh, put the book into print, right? like the way that I always used to describe it to my students is like, you know, the, the, the mathematics of it aren't easy. And so when you find somebody yeah. who reads your book with at that level of depth and gives you those kinds of responses... Uh, right. you're, you're in the, like the situation that I always try to compare it to, as I say, imagine going into a bookstore and browsing the bookstore blindly. Like, like you don't have a plan for what you're going to get, if anything. Right. And then you, you just sort of like pass by a certain shelf and look at a certain title on a certain spine. And for some reason you, you peel that book out, you open it, you start reading, you love it and you buy it. Like that's the mathematics that you're trying to right. sort of like yeah. access yeah. when you're trying to find an agent. And so, uh, I was talking to another friend of mine. And she was saying that, like, you know, she's in sort of a similar boat where she has this manuscript done and she's struggling, you know, really hard to find somebody uh, to represent it, uh, much less publish it. But yet she has this agent who's kind of like a friend of hers or a friend of a friend. And this agent is like so nice to her and has been giving her like the most amazing feedback. And she's like, it's almost like we're dating and like, I want to have the talk about what this means. You know? Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, you, you like, they appear in your dreams yes. and, um, and, you know, you spend 45 minutes composing an email to that person. Yeah. I mean, they, they quickly move into a little corner of your anxiety ridden heart. So, uh, so I already felt like half married to this agent, even though he probably, you know, was having many two hour phone calls that day. Yeah. Uh, so, you were like the third one he'd done that day, you know, that's right. Yeah. I didn't want to think about that part. That's a whole other <laughs> set of anxieties. <laughs> but um, I, I felt um, that I had to just, you know, hold on to this little snip of advice for everything that I could, you know, sort of like a lifeline that someone had tossed to me. It's all I had. So I thought I'm going to run with this. This feels like the right advice. And, um, so anyway, I cut it a lot and I edited it a lot and I sent it back to him nine months later and he said, Oh my God, it feels like a different book. And he, you know, was immediately receptive and wanted to work with me. So I was thrilled. And, um, and it turned out at that point that his suggestions were so good that two other agents wanted to, um, work with a book too. And so I, I was in a happy position of at that point being able to, uh, to, to, you know, to honor my vow. To yeah. uh, and we walked down the literary aisle. Uh, so that was, you know, when the, when the good feelings start to happen and you want to keep those good feelings going, you know, so he quickly, uh, you know, within a few weeks, I did a few more edits, um, put together a list of editors. Uh, I think he sent it out to about 20, editors and um and it happened really quickly you know i guess my understanding is that there's a lot of variety in terms of uh, of how quickly it can happen but um i, I think by the he sent it out to one editor uh like on a sunday night and then by monday night she was talking preempt so um i don't think she even finished it by that point so so we sort of like didn't even let the other editors finish reading it. I just had one conversation with Lee Bedreau at Echo 
and and felt like this is the right person. So uh, so we sort of sealed the deal. Wow. I, I'm the kind of person who like I I went to visit Middlebury College where uh, where I went to school as an undergrad, and then like after going to visit the campus, canceled all of my interviews at like Haverford and Swarthmore. You know, like, I'm, this is it. This is it. Got to be it. You went like that. Yeah. Well, you have good intuition, you know. I mean, I guess. Lee, Lee, Lee I guess. Drow's not a, you know, that's a good place to land, you know. Yeah, she's not, she's not shabby. She's wonderful too. Um, so, okay. so one thing I want to jump in, and uh, I want to ask you because, like, this is an, it just strikes, it strikes me as an interesting point with regard to editorial feedback because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when you're in the position that you were in and you have a manuscript completed that you've been laboring over uh, mm-hmm. for a long time, and then you know you get to the point where you start to share it. And Mm -hmm. whether you're sharing it with a uh, spouse or a significant other or close friends or some sort of colleague or somebody who's a trusted reader uh, or it's an agent or a prospective agent, you know, it can get confusing. And this can Mm -hmm. happen. This can happen in a workshop environment, too, where you all of a sudden, you know, you've you've got this uh, piece of writing that you've been spending all this time with. And all of a sudden, everybody's giving you their opinion on it and you don't know what to do. I mean, you can feel a little punch drunk. Right. And what I what I find interesting is that. You know, when uh, Jim gave you his advice, like mm-hmm. y- you knew it. You know what I'm saying? I always, I always, yeah. I think that's really true. Like when somebody gives you really good editorial advice, it's self-evident. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you just, yeah. you're like, oh, of course that's it. You know what right. I'm saying? It's, it shouldn't be something that you have to like struggle with. And I always like, you know, if pressed for advice, not like I'm in the advice giving business, but if pressed for advice, I always say, you know, if you're anywhere in the middle, you know, go with your own opinion because at least that way if if it's if it sucks it's yours <laughs> right well i i think you know this is that a lot but i think good uh good feedback always resonates with the feedback that you you know you, you knew yourself but didn't really want to admit to yourself you know it sort of hits you in the stomach in that place that you were sort of trying to pretend didn't exist right. so like oh shit you're right i've got to cut 75 pages i have to cut that fucking cow scene right i want them to kidnap the cow right. you know right. they've got to kidnap the cow so i had this you know one scene that that lasted 14 drafts where these teenage boys kidnap a cow and uh and had to go and i knew he was right so it went but um but you sort of know, right? I mean, you at least you have some idea that uh, you know that you have this darling that you don't want to get rid of, or you yeah, well, that's you a, don't want to change. My old film professor in undergrad used to call it killing your babies. Just a terrible, right. a terrible way to put it, but yeah, I don't think your film professor invented that. I hate yeah. to break it to him. No, yeah, yeah. I just remember him saying it all the time. Yeah, you know, uh, and no, it's right. It's true. It's really true. Um, okay, so then you 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 know the manuscript got preempted by Lee at Echo. That was it. Yeah. That was it. And then, uh, and then like, okay, here's an interesting question. Like once the book was acquired, like what was the, what was the experience like after that? Was there a lull? Like, did you hit some kind of like, you know, you talked about like that kind of sickening, like almost like sugar high experience. And then then I find that after acquisition, um, you know, because you you know, your editor has other books, uh, to deal with it or some of which are more pressing, you know, in terms of time schedules. Right. Like there can be kind of a quiet that settles over and all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a minute. You know, like, yeah. What happens next? You know. Yeah, there, it is a sugar high. Where you know, I talked to other writers about this, where you know, there's nothing like that week where you're, you know, getting emails from people who are saying things about your book that you've been dreaming about, and and so then you're like googling your name in the middle of the night um, <laughs> because you can't sleep and you want to get that sugar high. <laughs> right, right. It's really em- embarrassing to talk about, but it's true. And and then 
Um, and then there's a, a bit of a wall. I mean, my editor and I think probably a lot of editors are really careful about, um, you know, uh, making sure that they make you feel like you're the only one in their inbox. But, you know, there are other other writers there. And there must be a name for that, too, or like a syndrome for that, like the jealousy you feel about your editor's other writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at one point, my editor... Um, accidentally cc'd me on an email that she wrote to another writer whose book she was about to publish and uh and she's very sweet about it and you know said that she wanted to introduce the two of us but um but yeah maybe for half a day i was really jealous of this other writer who was getting my editor's attention but you know i guess my editor has like a kid to feed so she's got to publish more than my book right well and you know i feel like it's in you know it's an interesting point and like Somebody who's a really gifted editor, in addition to having like a great uh, literary sense, you know, the ability to really right. like, assess a text and be able to like evaluate it from the perspective of the person who wrote it and their intent, you know, yeah, and uh, she was like that. That level of like creative empathy is rare. And then, you know, in addition, you've also got to have kind of just like basic empathy and like really kind of deaf psychological skills because you know, it's fragile. Like, and I don't mean to paint writers. I, I get kind of, I kind of bristle at the idea that all writers are just like emotionally fragile creatures, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's very difficult work and a book can kind of feel like a house of cards and, um, you go through all the struggles that you go through and you get to the point where, you know, it's about to be published and all this other stuff. And, right. you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it, I think anybody would be, a little would feel a little bit vulnerable in that position. And, and some of us handle it better than others, but yeah. I, think, I think that like a good editor has an incredible bedside manager, you know? Yeah. And they, I think have developed some tricks like, uh, you know, I was also very pregnant at the later stages of the whole, you know, about to launch phase. And, uh, and so like, you know, hormones don't help with the anxiety <laughs> and the vulnerability. It's like a living but she would, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was. And so she would call me um, quite often just to check in and see, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Have you had your baby yet? So I think she, you know, must have had me in her spreadsheet calendar somewhere. How else do you keep track of all of your authors and their pregnancies? Okay, but that's... So she was savvy. That's another good point is that like, and this is the thing though, is that like, I don't think most writers, I mean, it's like you don't even really need much more than just like a check-in. I think any, any kind of communication from an editor or an agent, even like a quick email or a quick phone mm-hmm. call, like that sort of stuff goes a long way. And I think it really does. I think yeah. sm- smart editors and smart agents realize that it's like worth your time. If any editors or agents are listening to this, it's so worth your time to just like, <laughs> send a quick email, check in, let them know you're thinking about them. You know? <laughs> like, that's right. About Valentine's day is coming up. You know, right. Flowers are okay. Cookies, Ch- chocolates, whatever it takes, you know? Um, that's so I want to ask you, I guess I want to ask you about straight edge because like, okay. and I know you get hammered with questions about this, but like, it's just too, it's just too juicy and too central to your book not to bring up. Uh, it's pretty juicy. Yeah. I mean, and, and like the thing about it too, is that like, I remember, um, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and I remember in high school in Indiana, there were a few straight edge kids. Um, mm-hmm. we even had a skinhead at my high school for a little really? while. Yeah. Like we had one of those too, but like. You know, it's kind of like this fundamentalist punk, and I don't mean to. Maybe that's not. Maybe that's yeah. not the right way to describe it, but it sort of seems that way. I mean, it's. I think like, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I'm. I just want to hear about how you became interested in this. You know, like just give us the background a little bit on it. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I'm sitting here in my office and looking at a picture of my husband with our little boy in a little photo booth, and he is uh, displaying uh, at least one of his straight-edge tattoos. So, um, you know, I met this guy when I was uh, in high school, and he was several years out of high school and, uh, you know, sort of tatted up with straight-edge mottos and um, was very much involved in the scene at the time that I met him. And uh, I was just immediately intrigued by his experience in the scene. Um, I think juicy is a really good way to describe it. It just seemed incredibly juicy from a personal point of view, Um, you know, sort of an awe and admiration of someone who had chosen to uh, live a, a... chemical-free life and to, um, and to, you know, really involve himself really deeply in the music of that scene. So, you know, I just thought he was incredibly cool and sort of had a crush on the scene through my crush on him, I think. Okay. So wait, now, like, just to give it a little bit more context, like, what were you like? I mean, what were you, 16, yeah. 17 years 17. Old? So I'm 17, high school valedictorian, newspaper, staff, editor, I didn't want to admit any of that stuff to him, you know, like, so on our, one of our like fourth dates, someone outed me like nice valedictorian speech, you know, <laughs> while we were at like TGI Fridays or something. Oh no! So I didn't want him to know cause he was so, you know, punk rock. But, um, but so, you know, I, I came at it from a, like an angle that, you know, sort of related with, um, with the ethos, like I, you know, I wasn't really into drugs or drinking in high school because I was, you know, too busy being, you know, getting to class on time. Um, but I, I wasn't cool enough to really be involved in the hardcore punk scene either. So I was interested in it, and uh, and also like coming from like kind of grunge kid scene, I feel like I was really drawn to the um, kind of DIY ethos that really wasn't a part of my whole music coming of age. Um, you know, I was like used to going to these shows and these huge stadiums at the Miami auditorium to go see like soul asylum or whatever. And he was coming from this place where, you know, that was the lamest possible thing that you'd want to do. I was at, we grew up in West Palm beach, Florida. So okay. that's where we met. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I was coming from a different place in a lot of, lot of ways. So, you know, I just thought the scene was incredibly interesting. Um, so we moved to Vermont shortly after that, and um, he continued to grace his body with tattoos, and we went to a lot of shows up at, uh, in Burlington, Vermont, a lot of hardcore shows. So I never really identified closely um, with the scene myself, but uh, just continued to be really interested in it, and, and the material of the scene seemed juicy. Um and it seemed like just really ripe for fiction, and I I didn't hadn't read any fiction that uh, that was about straight edge. Although I know a little bit of fiction now that is about straight edge. Okay, so and, but can yeah. I stop you just because I'm curious? Like you never felt like you were really a part of the scene yet. You were dating, yeah. you were dating a guy who was like deep into it. So like, yeah, how did, what was the dynamic? You know what I'm saying? Was he going to these shows and you were with him and you were just sort of like. You know what I'm saying? Like, how could you not yeah. become enmeshed in it? I mean, how? Right. What was the level of activity that you or participation that you had? Well, my participation was basically limited to you know being in state for some of these shows and really enjoying them a lot. But uh, the thing, he was 24 when I met him, so he's kind of aging out of the scene a little bit. You know, which is you know another kind of issue that sometimes happens with kids in the scene who um, who grow up and out of the scene. Um, you know, true till college is a common riff on true till death. 
which is, you know, one of the models of the straight edge scene. Well, and, and you know what? You should probably tell people like who yeah. are 100% clear. Like, right. what, what are the, the basic tenets of straight edge? Yeah. Well, straight edge kids basically don't do drugs. Um, but there, there's also a strong component of hardcore music that, that uh, is involved in straight edge scenes. So, um, so just a, a little bit of background. Um, the term straight edge is usually attributed to the song straight edge um, that Minor Threat put out in 1981. Um, but Ian MacKay didn't really intend to launch a straight edge movement, but that, that's really sort of what happened. Um, so this is, you know, DC area, um, early eighties. And, uh, by the, by the end of the eighties, um, there's sort of what I consider to be kind of straight edge heyday. Um, and so my book takes place in 1988 in New York city, um, when, during this kind of youth crew era of the straight edge scene, which, which, uh, you know, defines this period of, of hardcore music that came out of the scene. Have you, but have you, can I ask you a question? Did you ever hear of a band called split lip? Sure. Yeah, my husband's a huge fan of Split Lip. Yeah. Okay, so well, I think one of the guys I went to high school with was in that band. That was the really. Yeah, his name's Kurt Mead. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that's cool. So there's a small world for you. But I remember. It like, is. I just remember, like, I had no access to it. I was just like, you know, I didn't understand, and like, you know, my parents were like Southern. Uh, they were not hippies. They were the opposite of hippies. They were sort of right. like Southern sweet squares. Well, so were mine, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like when you know, like I. My rebellion was more in line with like the flower children. Like I had my, I had yeah. my sixties and like the early nineties. I was like, <laughs> right, I'm like right. a generation behind, but, uh, you know, um, I remember, you know, Kurt was a nice guy, but I remember he went through this like straight edge phase. He was a year older than me and, uh, yeah, he lives out in LA here too. Now he's like been a musician. Oh, really? Yeah, That's really funny. Yeah. Right out of uh, central Indiana. So, yeah. So he would be, you know, a, a uh, he was right up there, the the rest of the youth crew bands um, that my husband was listening to constantly on his, you know, split seven inches that he'd spent a lot of money on. Where are all those keys and and uh, and and records now in his office, taking up a lot of space. But um, anyway, so so the whole idea of you know these these kids who are rebelling against traditional forms of rebellion. You know, it was really interesting to me. You know, they're, um, you know, they're part of the just say no generation and they're taking it really seriously. And they're, um, you know, they're rebelling against the hippie generation that kind of protected rebellion. <laughs> right. So it's almost, so, like there's almost a level of absurdity to it. And then like, when you say that it, like, I didn't realize that it, you can trace its origins to Washington DC in the eighties. Yeah. Which, you know, of course, like with Reagan in office and just exactly, you know, it seems yeah. like, it's like makes like really strange logical yeah. sense. Yeah, well, Reagan, Reagan Youth, you know, is another is another one of the the bands. So, um, yeah, so it just seemed like sort of irresistible material to me. You know, you had these kids who, are on the one hand, you know, very, uh, very, you know, they're, they're choir boys, you know, and uh, you know they're not drinking, they're not doing drugs, in some cases they're not having sex or eating meat. You know, really clean lifestyles that are, you know, to me in, in some ways really admirable. Um, but then there's a, the side of the scene, um, or at least some parts of the scene that are a lot darker and a lot, um, a lot more aggressive. Um, the music is certainly aggressive. Um, there, you know, the, the scene is known as being sort of positive, you know, we used of today would be a band that was really, um, into spreading a positive message about positive youth. Um, but you know, there were a lot of fights that a lot of those shows and youth of today and some other bands were kicked out of CBGB for stage diving. So, um, you know, there, these were kids who, who were making choices to, you know, not participate in what 
their peers were doing, but they were also having a lot of fun and getting into a lot of trouble at the same time. Okay. So like when you get like, because you have so much experience being around, um, you know, your husband and then being around, uh, his friends and other people in the scene, like mm-hmm. what, and then you wrote this book, like what did, did you find any common denominators in the psychology of it? And like, you know, obviously there's the element of it where the kids are rebelling against, um, the indiscretions and rebellions of their own parents who, you know, who right. came of age in the sixties or whatever. But like, you know, I think about, I think about, um, straight edge kids coming of age in the eighties. And I wonder if like all of them were like explicitly rebelling against their parents, you know, drug use or whatever it might Mm -hmm. be, or Mm -hmm. if they were just sort of like swept up into the just say no stuff and they were rebelling against something that they really had no experience with, right? that they had just been told was bad. I think it's both. Um, but I, I, my feeling is that, um, that as straight edge has progressed and, and it has, and is now, you know, the global movement, um, probably more kids who are involved in the movement are, um, of the latter category, you know, who, who haven't had the experience to discard. Um, but my, my feeling is that, uh, you know, we, just because of the, the generational situation, um, a lot of the kids who were initially involved, were, you know, rejecting forms that they'd inherited from their parents and also from, like, the previous music, um, the musical generation that preceded it. Like, you know, punk was all about you know, getting wasted, and uh, and they wanted to preserve some of the, the, the best parts of the music, but, um, but discard um, what they saw as superfluous and excessive. So, um, so I, I think... I think a lot of kids had experience with drugs or, um, or, you know, had friends who had experience with drugs or their parents, um, you know, gave them a bad example of drug use. And certainly that, uh, was most conducive to writing a novel, <laughs> you know, yeah. to give, to give a character, uh, you know, a, a rich background and, um, and drug abuse is going to, is going to give you a little bit more narrative energy than someone who, who sort of randomly finds himself in the scene. So, you know, as I was beginning to write the book, I, I thought about what kind of kid would be drawn to the straight edge scene. Um, and you know, obviously kids are drawn to the scene for a lot of different reasons, but, um, my main character in my book, Jude is a 16 year old boy who um, becomes involved in the scene, um, uh, because he was exactly the kind of kid who straight edge kids beat up, you know, a few months before he was experimenting with all kinds of drugs and inadvertently kills his best friend by, uh, by getting him to, to, um, to inhale Freon at the beginning of the novel. So, um, that and some other drugs sort of contribute to this lethal cocktail that kills his best friend early in the book. Okay. So a couple things that just yeah. come to mind, like, uh, mm-hmm. Like this, like, first of all, like, did you have any experiences or witness any kind of like, uh, you know, overdoses or or accidents like that in your past that you were drawing from? Or was this something that you just invented wholly? I I drew really, um, really uh, minimally from uh, experiences. I wasn't close to anybody who had overdosed, but there was a girl in my high school who, who did die in the same way, who overdosed on Freon in her backyard. And uh, we, you know, we lived in Florida, so it was a much different setting from Vermont, where this part of the book takes place. And I remember the image that was described of her in the news was um, that she was found in her backyard in her bathing suit and her flip flops yeah. um, by her air conditioner uh, alone. 
And I, for some reason, that that terrible image stayed with me. And uh, so and I found don't even I mean, pardon me for being naive, but like I don't even yeah. understand what like free like it's the freon is the coolant. Freon is the coolant, yeah. And so apparently, it's it's huffable. Um, and you know, it's sort of difficult to do research on. <laughs> I found myself on some sort of sketchy message boards, not getting responses. <laughs> like I wanted to know, like. Does the air conditioner have to be on in order for you to you to huff the freon, right? Because the scene takes place in the middle of the winter in Vermont. Um, but I never found out the answer, so I hope it's no. Um, but maybe somebody could let me know if they if they know that if that's the case or not. But, um, but yeah, that, apparently that's a, a fairly common way uh, to to get high. Um, so, you know, these are kids who. who or in a small town in Vermont in the 80s and don't have a lot of sophisticated means of finding drugs, so they sort of find their find their highs wherever they can get them. Sure. So there's there's that that component um, of you know the sort of small town kid who who came across this tragedy um, and and that experience sort of turned his life around. Um, uh, his the the boy who dies, his older brother in the book, um, is involved in straight edge sort of for the same reasons and sort of shepherds uh, this boy Jude into the scene. Um, so you know, there's a lot of that um, you know group uh, mentality to some degree. You know, it's a it's a club of its own for sure. So some of that is attractive, I think, and um, and also you know Jude is uh, is adopted and feels like he's sort of been adopted into the wrong family into this kind of hippy dippy family and um and for that reason I think feels like he really needs to find a, a family to belong to and straight edge and you know in the best way possible is a kind of family for a lot of kids. So um you know I think that he's a sort of extreme example of somebody who would be drawn to that scene. Well no, I mean it's like it's got I mean you can't ignore you can't miss kind of like the similarities between straight edge and religion. I mean like Sure. There's just a lot of parallels. It's 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 a life system. It's an approach, right, right. You know? And it's just it, and it just so happens to have like these like unbelievably great contradictions, like this mashup of like punk and like you know like fundamentalist clean living is is sort of awesome. You know, like it is awesome. I mean, it's awesome in the sense that you know I I wish that I could have been involved, but the second best thing was to write a book about it. So yeah, that's I mean, what I did. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as far as the scene goes and like, forgive me if this is like a, a, a silly question, but like, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, straight edge, the straight edge culture and their approach to people who do partake in drugs and alcohol right. uh, and, and stuff that they disapprove of, like how much vi- like systematic violence is mm-hmm. there? Like, is that approved or is that something that they're like? What's their what's the what's the straight edge community's approach to violence? Like that's a fair question, right? Yeah, it is a fair question. You know, I I think there isn't a systematic approach. Um, I think there may be an approach, you know, by the crew, or by the town, or by you know by the era. But um, you know, my husband's experiences in the scene uh, revealed that there is quite a bit of of violence. Um, and, you know, I've tried to capture some of that in the book. I mean, he used to go after drug dealers with friends in Florida, BB guns, you know, as uh, as my characters do. So, you know, no one intends to do lethal harm, I think. But um, but that's sort of where the focus is, you know, is the, is the kind of, uh, um, you know, beating up the bullies who, who beat you up years before. Um, and 
but you know, if you if you see a documentary like um, the the Straight Edge documentary made by National Geographic, for example, you know, they point out a lot of uh, a lot of systematic violence in terms of like um, you know uh, jumping drug dealers at clubs and things like that. Um, there for a while, uh, one or two Straight Edge groups were listed as you know someone's ledger of terrorist groups because they threatened to, I don't know, do something to a fur factory or something. I don't know the specifics, but you know, there's, there's definitely that view of a certain sect of the straight edge scene. Yeah. It's, but then it's there, splinters. I mean, it's not like it's yeah. just one thing, obviously. It, there's not, yeah, it's not one thing at all. And, and my sense is that it's, you know, as it's becoming bigger, it's becoming um, more positive and more, um, more of a sort of supportive community. And, and I've had, I've had a wide range of notes from people, um, many of whom say that, who, you know, who are involved with the scene, who think that the depiction was accurate in the book of, of some of the, the violence that they saw. And then some have said that, you know, they re- their scene was really pretty clean and pure and they didn't see uh, any of that action at all. So, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that my characters in the book represent the only vision of straight edge, you know, every book needs some conflict. So there, there's some fights and there's some weapons and, and there are some sort of like, uh, you know, ill conceived, uh, Friday nights in the book. But, um, you know, I've, I've tried to, to be as true to some stories that I've heard uh, about the scene as possible. Well, and you know, also like, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, it's, it's human beings, you know? So like right. human right. beings sometimes get violent and fight and, you know, it doesn't matter what scene they're in. You yeah, know. and and there's there's human beings in there, sixteen year old boys. You know, and they tend to fight, from what I hear. Okay, so I guess like then the next question would be, um, you know, as you've watched your husband age, you know, as you you guys have gotten older, um, yeah. you know, has he mellowed some in his stances? Like, how do how do you phase out? And like, does it does he still consider himself straight edge? Do people <laughs> as they get older, is there like a you know, are there a group of 40 year olds in the scene right. still? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. How does, yeah. It, how does it work once you advance beyond like those really intense and impressionable years, like, right. in, you know, in adolescence in your early 20s? Well, that's one of the things that's really interesting to me in the scene, seeing, seeing folks age through it and out of it in some cases. My husband's not straight edge uh, anymore. He wouldn't call himself straight edge. And, you know, he, like, I think a lot of kids went in and out of the scene, you know, had been involved in the scene and then wasn't before he met me and then was back in it again. And, you know, that, that kind of extreme mentality where you're either, you know, one thing or the other, but you know, the gray area is, is harder to exist in was definitely true for him. So, um, you know, he's a chain smoker now and, uh, and but still kind of wears his, his straight edge tattoos with pride. He's he's, uh, he's <laughs> he's Marlboro Edge. Uh, so he, uh, he, you know, he'd like to be straight edge, but he um, he's gone back on the smoking wagon. For example, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't drink very much, but he, um, you know, I, I think he's you know representative of a certain kind of guy who needed straight edge, you know, when he was a teenager and a young adult, and um, and you know, I think there are kids who, for some, for some kids, it really kind of saved their life um, and gave them the, the kind of community that they needed and the kind of positive life that they needed. Um, but it, it's interesting to me like, how the straight edge values remain in the lives of adults. Like uh, my husband now is, you know, like a Republican and really uh, a really strict dad. You know, like that's how it's how it's manifested in him. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are other guys like that. Like a lot of guys who graduate from straight edge go on to be uh, members of the military, 
Okay, that, you know that was like my next question. Like, it, yeah. it, you know, it also begs it also begs questions about politics and like, mm-hmm. you know, do you find that like most of the people in the community tend to lean rightward? I wouldn't say that. No, I, I would say I would say leftward. But you know, I, I'm I'm not an expert by any means. I mean, I, I my my scope is limited. But um, no, I mean, a lot of a lot of kids who are involved in straight edge now are really into supporting animal rights movement, and they have other social causes that are really admirable. So I would associate a lot of those movements with the left. But um, but there is something very right wing about. Um, the, the militants of uh, militants militant militancy whatever of the of the scene um, you know it's uh, it's it's one thing or another right there's there's not a lot of gray and straight edge you're either in or you're out yeah. so um, so that that part of his brain that needed that kind of structure and discipline I think is still is still alive um, but you know there have been people who I think have really elegantly um, moved through you know the straight edge kid experience to, to become adults. And like, um, I, I really admire the, the, um, folks who, who really made a big impact on the straight edge scene, like Ray Capo, um, who is now, um, you know, a yogi and teaches a really astonishing, uh, yoga teacher. And, um, I think he like, uh, um, either, Maybe I'm misspeaking, but there there are some straight edge folks who like you know have organic cow farms or something, you know like who are uh, who have taken the ethos of straight edge like back to the earth sort of you know back to its sort of most elemental form and so they're just still living these really clean and pure and simple lives but they're doing so in a way that's like a little bit um, a little bit more uh, PC today you know I mean like or just a little softer maybe it's soft it's softer yeah it's softer. Um, and a lot of them are dads, you know, I mean, they grow up and they have families and they still remain, um, they still remain, I think, pretty dedicated to, to the, the vision that they set out when they were teenagers. But, um, it's been, uh, it's been heartening for me to, to, to see those people and to hear from them after, um, after they've read the book, you know, that, uh, a lot of them are like, you know, accountants, <laughs> you know, I mean, they grow up, they're not always just, uh, pushing people around the CBGB or whatever. Right, right. Now, and you yourself, you, you were never straight edge. So, like, you were having a beer or two here or there. Like, was that the case or no? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I didn't have a drink until my senior year of high school, like, not before, not long before I met my husband. So, there's this weird, weird um, sort of clash where, you know, I was sort of just beginning to discover the possibility of substances when he came into my life. So... Um, but you know, I, I was pretty much straight edge when we were together. I, um, I just didn't ever identify that way. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say it'd be hard to make a re- like a, especially an intimate relationship work. If one person is like hardcore straight edge and the other person's like, right. you don't mind if I like, you know, do a beer bong. Do you? Sweetie? Yeah. Right. No, I wasn't in, I wasn't in that, but he, uh, I mean, he, he was, he, he never, um, I don't even know if he really would have wanted me to be straight edge. I mean, I certainly didn't feel any pressure to, if anything, I, um, was under pressure to appreciate his music because my music was so god awful in his eyes. You know, I still had my subscription to Spin magazine, and <laughs> and I was I was still like collecting my tickets in my little Monet ticket box 
yeah. you know, for, you know, Stone Temple Pilots or whatever. And he was having none of that. So he was a positive influence of me in that way. I was talking to my <laughs> wife and she was telling me, like, this is a while back, but she was telling me about how she and all of her girlfriends thought that, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce his name. Is it Scott Wieland or Wyland? I think it's Wyland, yeah. yeah. They were all like, they all had the hots for him when they were in college. I didn't have the hots for him, but um, yeah. but uh, there are plenty that I had the hots for. I think Dreadlocks did it, like the Soul Asylum dude and uh, Adam Duritz from Counting Crows. Big really? crushes for me. Yeah, Adam Duritz from Counting Crows, he gets some women. Like I just, I can't he believe does. that guy. Like, cause, like it's just, a little strange. Yeah, it's a little strange. It's a little bit like you, you look at him and you're like, that's you know, you wouldn't initially suspect that he would be a lady character. <laughs> yeah, and then you find out his dreads are actually extensions, and then it's really a buzzkill. Oh really? Yeah. Oh wow. I don't even know yeah. what that means. Does that mean they're fake? Yeah, they're fake. Oh. Damn. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. Yeah. yeah. I'm taking my poster down. That's it. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm trying to think. I had a question related to... Oh, okay. So I don't want to get... I mean, I, I certainly don't want to get too personal or, or dig too deeply into your personal life. But when you were talking about your past and how you met your husband, it brings up an interesting <laughs> question about like your parents and your family mm-hmm. and you being 17 and he being mm-hmm. significantly older and straight edge. Like mm-hmm. how did that go? Is that, I mean, is it okay for me to ask that? Cause it's, yeah. just, it's interesting. Like how did your parents respond when you're like, mom, dad, this is my 24 year old straight edged boyfriend or did you hide it? Yeah. It turns out my parents are really cool, which I didn't know. Um, I mean, they sort of, uh, they sort of pretended to, to put up a fight, but you know, they really liked them which helped. Um, and I had a brother who was exactly his age. His birthdays are two days apart. Um, and, uh, and I think, um, you know, like this whole family bonding experience sort of helped. And my parents are 12 years apart. You know, my dad's 12 years older than my mom. So she sort of felt like she couldn't be a hypocrite, but, um, you know, I mean, there were the typical fights about, uh, about seeing an older guy and, you know, they, they sort of, uh, they sort of wanted to put the brakes on that. I remember, um, the day when we went to TGA Fridays, I think we went to TGA Fridays a lot. And, uh, with my husband and I were on a date and I pulled out my toothbrush because I achieved a victory and my mom had let me finally at his house. Oh, wow. at, I don't know, 18 or something. Yeah. So yeah, that's a little scandalous, right? Like it, it's, it's, uh, in retrospect, you know, seven years isn't that big a difference, but, um, but, uh, you know, I, I think maybe the clean living thing was probably a positive, a positive marker for him i, I mean, was gonna he, say your dad must yeah. have been like well you know i know that she's gonna be sober and that yeah if, if this guy if anyone gives him any problems like this guy exactly this guy's gonna you know yeah you didn't to... want to mess with him that's exactly. for sure exactly. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah my parents didn't want him to you know didn't want to get clubbed by this guy so they basically you know let him right. take me away it's better than like coming home with some smelly hippie guy you know like, it's right yeah your parents probably were, right. were relieved um, okay. And so then, uh, how long did you get, and then you guys dated and then got married in your twenties I mean, like regular stuff, right? Yeah. Regular stuff, fairly regular stuff. We've been together for a long time. So, uh, yeah. And we have, uh, we have a couple little ones now, Whoa. but, um, I, he, I didn't let him read the book. Well, that's, that's not quite true. He didn't want to read the book until two days before I submitted it to my editor. Interesting. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of a weird a weird process in the sense that he was, uh, he was very much a part of the book, you know, like basically co-wrote it. I mean, it wouldn't exist without him, but, um, you know, it was, it was a strange situation. And then I, you know, I didn't really want to share it with him because I didn't want him not to like it. And he didn't want to read it because he didn't want 
to not like it. Yeah, you know, but you know what? Like, I have a similar relationship with my wife where, like, you know, really? there, there are some couples. Well, first of all, if, like, there's, there are some couples where it's, like, two writers, which, right. you know, is lovely when it works. Like, I can't imagine that. Like, one of me is enough is sort of my attitude. Right, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but, you know, to each their own. There's a lot of different ways it can happen. And um, But at the same time, it's like... I don't know. There's something for me. I like the separation and like my wife is dealing with me every day. Uh, right. I feel like the last, I mean, she read my book and she'll read my next book, but it's like, I think, uh, you know, I, I think you almost need to turn, or at least I need to turn to some, uh, to people who are like further removed from me for critical yeah. feedback, you know? Yeah. I mean, especially with the topic that's so, so close to him. Well, and, um, yeah. I mean, it, he, did he feel ever like he was being, I mean, did, was he conscious of the fact that you were basically, uh, uh, researching the, yeah, his yeah. experience. I mean, he sure. Knew. I mean, he was my research assistant, you know, I would like knock on his office door in the middle of the night after making a big pot of coffee and like ask him who split a seven inch with split lip in 1989 or whatever. Yeah. So he, yeah, he, he was very, uh, at the ready with, uh, with research and felt very useful in that way and was really supportive of, of the book and, um, and wanted to read it eventually, but it was, it was just, you know, getting over that, that hump of, uh, you know, admitting that this was a thing in a book in the world, you know, we could sort of ignore it until it actually found a, a home somewhere. And then we had to <laughs> quickly make sure that uh, he did the real fact checking. And it was, it was a big relief when, when I discovered that he actually did like it. Oh, he did. Okay. That's yeah. A, yeah. That is a relief, you know? Yeah. It was a big relief. Yeah. It was, it was on my mind, but, but yeah, you know, I always kind of presented those, those writer couples because, uh, you know, I mean, I I think part of me, you know, wanted, you know, coveted that uh, that close relationship that writers have, you know, because Aaron is not a reader or a writer. But um, but you know, I I think ultimately, at least for the purposes of this project, it really served us well. You know, we kind of kept our our food from touching on the plate. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, but that'll be the last book about him, I think. You're not going to do. You're not like doing another one right now. About like no, a, a, no. a quasi straight edge, like a crooked edge. <laughs> no, no crooked edge, straight edge number two. No sequels. Uh, well, I, you know, and you, you, I should say that if you've worked on a book for nine years, you, you sort of, I think, at the end of that process, it would be hard to believe that you would have like another several years in you on the same yeah. wavelength. You almost need to shift gears, I would imagine. I'm entirely shifting gears. I don't ever want to see these characters again. As yeah. much as I love them, I'm done. Yeah. And uh, they're out of the nest. Yeah, I feel I feel that way very strongly. So are you working on something else? I'm working on something entirely different. Uh, I'm working on a novel that takes place in South Georgia in 1930. So uh, it probably couldn't be more different, which makes me a little bit nervous. But I'm trying not to think about, you know, audience and things like that straight edge peanut trying. farmers during the depression is that no that, yeah the <laughs> sharecropping straight edge <laughs> Punk peanut farmers I, I can feel it there uh, there will be some some overlap somewhere i'm sure yeah well thematically i mean i think people i mean i i think and i would i would ask if you agree like i feel like writers tend to hit the same small handful of themes in all their work you know, I think well, some... I'm finding myself as I'm typing a, a scene about the prohibition recently that um, I'm walking straight into, you know, another another set of uh, of fundamentalists. So, um, who yeah. knows? Maybe maybe that's my thing. We'll see. Well, no, I mean, it, you know, the, the, that 
that particular theme is of great interest to me as well. Like I've wrestled with it on this show before. I've talked about it. I go back and forth in my own life. Like, you know, I, I did drugs or at least experimented with them. I drank. Um, I don't, you know, I haven't in a long time been, uh, all that crazy. Uh, and I never really was like record breaking me crazy, but I certainly, yeah. certainly by some people's standards, I guess I was. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard for me to parse because uh, I don't think that like a f- you can be fundamentalist about it, like and say that like it's all bad or say that it's all good, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know that gray area, like that that sort of middle ground, is tricky. And you know, yeah. I can I can be so convinced by both arguments, you know, or by by a variety of arguments that I, I find myself sort of, you know, just lost somewhere in the middle. I'm like that in my life, you know. And I, I was sort of joking with someone the other night, and I was like, I think that I'm like an extremist moderate in the sense that I, I, I can't make up my mind about anything, about anything. I under, you know, like people are like, you know, whether it's like abortion or whatever, like I can, right, I, I right. can be convinced both ways. And I find myself just sort of like hanging in this weird, like uh limbo, you know, I think I'm an extremist moderate too. I yeah. think you just explained it. And I think that's a really good place to be actually. I hope so. I mean, you know, I worry sometimes that I don't have the strength of my own convictions or that I don't know my mind. You know what I'm saying? Because like sometimes sometimes I can be around people who have like really strong feelings and I will have such admiration and they can articulate them. And I will have like this extraordinary admiration for them because I'll be like, now here's a person who sees things and has the, um, the guts to say so. Do you know what I'm saying? Whereas I'll be like, well, I'm not so sure, you know, like, what about this? <laughs> That's because you have a healthy, a healthy view of the world. You know, you're, you're skeptical. And, uh, I think that's a good place to be, Brad. I think you should stop giving yourself a hard time. All right. I'll find a way to continue, but I'll, I'll try my <laughs> best. Now, uh, just, we just have a few minutes left, but I do, I do, before I let you go, I want to ask you. Um, I noticed in your bio that you were born in Greece. So I want to ask about that just to like, just curious, you know, I'm curious about it. And then, um, yeah, let's just start there. And if we have time, I want to ask about Palm beach just because that sort of fascinates me too. Yeah. Well, I wish I had an, an exciting story. Like my parents were, you know, like missionaries or something, but, um, my dad was as an architect working in Saudi Arabia and, uh, and in Athens and, uh, my, my, brothers were little there and um, they lived there for two years and I happened to be born there while they lived over there. Um, so I haven't been back even since I was a year old. I really oh, would like to. Okay. Yeah. But like, what was he building? He's an architect and he's over in South <laughs> He's an architect. Yeah. Building buildings. I don't know. Buildings, you know, public buildings, like, I don't know, libraries, hospitals, wow. uh, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Okay. It's cause like that's, that's actually really fascinating to me because I wonder how it works. Like, you know, you have your architects who are sort of, designing like track housing and like McMansions and stuff like that. But it's like, how do you get to the level where like, you know, governments are hiring you to build, you know, like civic spaces and buildings that multiple people will go to, you know, because like that seems like a lot more fun to me. (laughs) Yeah. He never really was into the residential thing. I guess he just sort of started in more of the civic, the civic side. The first building he designed was when he was, 16 in Fitzgerald, Georgia. He he designed one of the town churches, which is now, like, no, which is which is now like, you know, where I'm finding myself uh, again when I sit down to write. But but yeah, he uh, he he designed the first one of the first churches. So he's like a savant. He do, you, you, 16, he's a savant. Sixteen year olds do not design buildings. Sixteen, yeah, but that's the thing. When you're in Fitzgerald, Georgia, 
Yeah, someone, I shouldn't, someone I shouldn't say that because I'll start getting more letters from people from Fitzgerald, <laughs> Georgia. But um, but yeah, he was he was a savant. I guess there's that. So that's Greece. That's why I was in Greece. Okay. I'm not Greek. Yeah. And then Palm Beach. Like, is Palm Beach what I'm thinking? It's like all the big houses <laughs> and like the you know Dade, is that Dade County or Palm? You know, Palm that's Beach. Palm Beach County. Yeah. yeah. So that's like the Donald Trump side of Palm Beach. Yeah. Um, so you know beautiful Royal Palms and uh, Worth Avenue and Flagler Drive and it, quite a beautiful area. But I lived, uh, I lived, you know, in suburban West Palm Beach. So in, in North Palm Beach and, um, and I can't say that it was the best place to grow up as a writer, but I think, I think maybe in some places, in some ways it was because, you know, it's, it's a pretty sterile, pretty commercial, pretty pink place to live. <laughs> and um, had color. You know. I had a little color, yeah, and there's some wonderful things about growing up in Florida, and I, I think actually I'm becoming more interested in Florida as a writer, but, um, but you know, I just wanted to get north as soon as I could, so, you know, the day that I, that I, that I was able to, I got on a, got on a plane, so, um, and, and headed north, so that's where I am now, and that's where, that's where I feel most at home, and now the sun is setting over the mountains and my view. So it's sort of uh, a nice way to close, I think. Uh, yeah, I know. We, I feel like <laughs> this is like, there's like a nature element. This is the first time my, my, my podcast has ever closed with a sunset. It's sort of beautiful. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. <laughs> well, uh, it's been great talking with you and, you know, congrats. I, I should, I should add like this book has had, uh, for a debut has had an extraordinary run, like best of lists and New York times love and all this kind of stuff. Like, are you? Uh, how do you not get a big head? Are you? Are you, do, you have, do you? Uh, do you? Do you have to fight that? Like, do you have some sort of like, uh, you know, ego thing happening now? Or are you? Able to- no, I'm. I'm over like googling my name in the middle of the night. I'm over the sugar high. I mean, it's been uh, incredibly rewarding. I mean, you know, there have been plenty of of not wonderful reviews as well, but I've been really lucky to have some very godmothers and godfathers out there. So, um, so you know what? You know when you have like a five-month-old baby you don't have a lot of time to google your name in the middle of the night. so one of the so, one of the many pluses yeah. of having a baby you know? yeah <laughs> there are a lot of them and, and so uh you know i'm i'm busy changing diapers luckily wow so. well i appreciate the time and uh you know congratulations on all of it and good luck on the writing of this new book thank you so much thank you for talking to me much. appreciate it it's my pleasure Okay, everybody, that's it. That's the show. That's Eleanor Henderson. 10,000 Saints is the book. Go get it. It's just out in trade paperback from Echo. Uh, if you want to find Eleanor on the web, you can visit her website at eleanorhenderson.wordpress.com, and you can find her on Twitter at Eleanor of Ithaca. That's her handle. It's Eleanor of Ithaca. And uh, she also has a Facebook presence. This show has a Facebook presence. It has a Twitter feed as well, at OtherPeoplePod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. And if you want to write to me, the email address is letters at OtherPeoplePod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Please be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And don't forget to check out The Nervous Breakdown, my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, it has some of the best writing on the web. And you can follow it on the Twitter at TNBTweets. So final thoughts, closing thoughts. Love, hate, weddings, old people, the fact that I am now at the helm of a burgeoning literary media empire. Uh, It's a great deal of responsibility, uh, but I want you to know that I'm ready for it and that I will wield this power with great care. 
And uh, otherwise, uh, I think it's important to remember that we are on a watery ball. Just that fact alone, the fact that we are standing on a watery ball, uh, that alone should bring some levity to your day in case you need it. And uh, I was listening to Meryl Streep on Fresh Air earlier, uh, you know, a few hours ago. Uh, Big Fresh Air fan. And I have a huge crush on Meryl Streep. I kind of do. And I also have kind of a crush on Terry Gross. Uh, and, uh, you know, so anyway, I just think that Meryl Streep, you know, might be the most nat, one of the most naturally gifted artists in the world. Uh, she just seems like she's really good at what she does. Everybody just keeps like handing her awards. Like she's so good. And then I guess I know some people who don't think she's good or they think, you know, it's all like, I don't know. I think she's good. I think it's hard to deny that she's good at acting. Like not even good that she's great at it. So anyway, I was, uh, I was walking around listening to her get interviewed by Terry Gross and she was talking about not worrying about things that don't mean a damn thing in the grand scheme of things, if you know what I'm saying. And I remember hearing that with my headphones on and I sort of nodded in solidarity and thought to myself, yeah. And then I thought to myself, uh, I'm standing on a watery ball. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's all I got. I'm going to go lord over my kingdom. I'm going to go tend to my vast literary media empire. I'll be back again soon. Uh, In the meantime, please get along with the people that you get along with. Don't wait for them to be nice to you. Just go be nice to them. It'll work. Uh, I promise. Just do it. Uh, Just go and, uh, and give them flowers. Even if it's a guy. Just give a guy some flowers, you know? Why not for a change? Guys like flowers. I like flowers. Uh, Will you send me some flowers?